Welcome to B2B Marketing Needs Don Draper, brought to you by True. For too long, B2B has lacked creativity and inspiration, leading to alarming declines in effectiveness and marketing departments being slowly devalued more and more within their organizations. We're here to change that by getting under the skin of what it really means to be a highly effective B2B marketer. We'll be speaking to some of the brightest minds in the industry to discuss what they're doing to be a bit more, well, Don Draper. And now, here's your host, Stuart Black. Joining us today on B2B Marketing Needs Don Draper is Susie O'Neill, Head of B2B Brand Content at Kaspersky. She leads global editorial and creative delivery for B2B brand projects for Kaspersky, the world's largest privately owned cybersecurity firm. They craft video, multimedia, and thought leadership brand awareness content that turns heads and wins awards. Susie leads multidisciplinary teams to transform data insight into high-performing brand strategy and digital experiences. So Susie O'Neill, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Stuart. Great pleasure to be here. First off then, what does being a bit more Don Draper mean to you? Well, I don't believe in this idea of left brain, right brain thinking. People's brains nowadays are far more complicated because they've evolved and changed actually as a result of the online age. But I think what Don taught us was quite embodied in the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And it's this idea of system one versus system two. So you've got the system one, which is very quick and reactive, intuitive thinking, and system two, which is more logical and reasoned. And Don does all those things. You see him in the meetings, and he's just crafting out an idea, but then he takes it back and he absorbs it and he thinks very, very carefully. He's very strategic in his creative approach. So I think perhaps Don was the first system one and two thinker. So having a bit of yin to the yang is is really important. And he also brought back the lost art of having a martini in a beautiful New York bar. So I enjoyed that (laughs) about the series. (laughs) I mean, that's that's not more lost than at the moment, is it? I could do with one of those. (laughs) So Kaspersky then, let's talk about that. The mission is to build a safer world is, is the line. How does your role as head of brand content help support that mission? Yeah. So, I mean, cybersecurity is a big part nowadays of how we protect our lives and our data and identity is so much crafted about the lives we lead online, particularly now we're all stuck indoors. So Kaspersky created the Brand Activation Studio, which is the team I'm part of, and it's an in-house storytelling content studio. And what we're trying to do is bring to life to different audiences the importance of the online world, but also how it can be challenged and threatened. So cybercrime is one of our biggest threats to leading that safe life online. And the opposite of that, um, of the villains, of the cybercriminals, is the heroes. It's the people in cybersecurity and the tools and technologies that can help protect you and your business. So we're trying to bring those ideas tangibly to life. And Kaspersky offers solutions to a a huge range of um, businesses from people you know at home to major enterprise many different areas how do you make content that's relevant to to all those different sectors well it's a really good question Stuart and one I ask myself quite frequently (laughs) because basically anyone who's got a computer potentially in a business context needs cyber security or even a a smartphone so I always think my customers are pretty diverse they could be anything from a barbershop in Milan to a, a power station in Kazakhstan or even an international bank on Wall Street so for me the question to be relevant is always about segmentation. And um, it's not, I mean, I don't work with databases and, and that fine grain type of segmentation, but what I'm talking about is segmenting people by their interests. So what is it that the people inside those businesses care about the most? 
for that power station, it might be keeping the lights on of their customers. For that barbershop, it could be making sure that the till operates so they can they can, they can uh, keep you know bringing in customers through the door. And the bank mm. might might be care about keeping their customer data safe because the data breach could be very um, costly in terms of both reputation and fines. Um, as we say, it's becoming a very complex place and a very dangerous space um, in, in the cyber world. So we help to demystify some of those issues and simplify what is complex and at times, frankly, terrifying, partly because of the unknownness of the complexity. We bring it to life with real examples. Um, so showing people and the organisations and the projects that are happening to help keep those people safe. So it's actually the opposite of fear-mongering, what you might see in a tabloid newspaper, actually showing how we can empower people to lead safer, more, more fulfilling online lives. And making your customers feel safe is, I guess, what keeps them loyal to the company, to, to, the, to the brands that you offer. To an extent, but, it's, but you don't want to be too boring. I mean, I also worked uh, at one point in my career for Viva, an insurance company, and we were also trying to get people interested in a very dry topic of, of insurance, um, which is something that you don't, you don't tend to think of until things go wrong. Um, but you don't want to approach it in a too dry way. So it's about showing people that are like them, the challenges that they face. And, and you have to actually, with these slightly more um, dry products, we could say, uh, you have to work much harder the more boring your product is to draw people into it. So uh, you start off with a bit of inspiration, perhaps a bit of in- humor, something very relatable to them. And then take people on that journey through education what could they do and what could they learn and at the very end you give them a bit of actionable insight which makes them feel like that, that it's been useful spending some time with your brand so you're, you're definitely all about bringing creativity into that process how far do you think you could push it um we, we've we've done some pretty pretty crazy things lately so a colleague of mine has just been shooting an advert for the gaming industry segment um and this is actually looking at how you can run cybersecurity software on your gaming technologies, but um, it also doesn't slow down your gaming, which is the biggest threat to the games is they, don't, they want to be moving fast. Um, so he was out there filming uh, uh, someone dressed as a giant banana <laughs> falling over. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, language specific to the gamers. Um, we've, uh, I, for the business audience, I filmed a video last year, which was all uh, set in a field and we showed a printer and, and um, somebody's will was coming out and private documents coming out of the printer to show the idea of bringing to life the idea of exposed data so i think you can push it in creative ways it's not always necessarily about being wacky because perhaps that's not the right Mm. tone particularly for a business audience but again it's doing something that is memorable and creates a resonance with people it's hitting that balance isn't it because it is a serious topic and everyone is worried as you say but you you still need to kind of activate their emotions at the same time yeah absolutely so let's talk a bit more about brand. You're part of the brand activation studio. You craft videos, make multimedia, thought leadership. Tell us more about the studio and what you're trying to achieve there exactly. Yeah, so we're, we're a small team. Um, there's around eight of us uh, working there. And it's essentially a model where we commission content that we believe in and the business believes that um, will help bring to life this sentiment and our, our, our brand mission of bring on the future, which is all about empowering people and organizations and businesses to take advantage of all those new technologies out there. And within that, there's a role for safety and making sure that the technology that you create or the technology you own is secured. Um, And we've got a fantastic project because we have carte blanche to create some really exciting content. We have real life cybercrime series. We have a series called Hacker Hunter, which explores 
um, some of the threats that are happening in the world right now and some of the heroes who have been saving us. Um, I've recently created an audio series called Fast Forward with uh, Ken Hollings, who is a BBC radio presenter by trade and one of the smartest, most switched on people I know. So I was really thrilled to work with Ken because he created a series for us about the past, present and future of network technologies. Mm. So uh, he just met some fantastic people. Uh, we, we learned a lot about things like the new space race and how laws in space are changing, how robots can become our companions. So we're trying to explore um, some pre- pretty edgy topics. It's not necessarily about Star Trek and going into space, but things that are really happening and are, are coming to businesses in the next 12 to 24 months, and in some cases, the technologies that are already here. And we're helping find ways um, both both, both that customers and also customers as consumers and also business audiences can start to really take advantage of those technologies. Because the first step of taking advantage of a technology is to know it's there, know how it works and be be hyper aware of it. Um, I always think that a lot of businesses become slightly fearful of new technologies. You kind of got the idea of disruptive innovation. Uh, if people become more empowered and learn more about technologies, then they can avoid becoming the next Kodak or Blockbuster. Absolutely. So how would you say do you measure the success of the branded content that you make? Um, Again, I think I probably have a little bit more license, which is a beautiful position to be in than others in B2B roles who very much have to prove ROI in terms of leads and conversions. Uh, My role is very much about how long people spend with engaging with the brand. So we, we look at measurements of um, dwell time, how many minutes viewed or how many minutes listened to our content. And that shows a deepening of engagement. So with an audio series, we can get people to engage for 10 minutes, which is fantastic if you think the average TV advert lasts about 30 seconds. Um, and the same with some of our documentary content. We've had some really good results with getting people to spend a lot more time with that branded content. And it's not necessarily about just pushing your product somewhere in the middle or or trying to push the brand message. We look at it as an entire embodiment of what we're about, which is bringing on the future, making people safer. So as long as people get that positive reaction to that content, hopefully they become more aware of our brand as a result of the process. Um, hopefully they'll be more likely to come back and seek advice from us in the future and consider us in their next purchasing decisions. So on the one hand, it's all about getting those precious eyeballs, but you've won a lot of awards as well for brand awareness content. What role do awards play in justifying your strategies to the leadership team? Well, quite an important role for our particular team because we're we're nascent. We need to prove what we're doing is effective to the outside world as well as our senior stakeholders but we're quite ambitious about awards we're not just trying to win brand awards or things that are obvious or at a local level we're trying to sometimes win international awards and we enter some of our documentaries in international film festivals where we've been placed and we've won awards like webbies so when you get to that international caliber we're trying to prove that we can create world-class content not just for the brand but that stands up and i do really believe that with branded content people are cynical you know whether they're aware of it or not. I guess if they're aware of it, it means that they're, you're successful in showing that it's part of your brand, but they can be then quite cynical. But is it worth spending the time? Is it biased? So I think you actually have to create better content when you're working for a brand than you might do if you were a publisher or a broadcaster. So those awards are really important for us to show that credibility. And you mentioned a few examples before, but is there a campaign or a piece of work that you're particularly proud of? 
Two years ago, we launched a publication called Secure Futures by Kaspersky, and it was actually a result of necessity. We didn't really have the media budget to create ad campaigns, um, as we thought we might have done. So I quickly looked at it and, and looked at some of my background in editorial and content marketing and thought about what we could create. Now, a lot of brands create what you'd call a content hub. I think that language is quite diminishing because those hubs typically are just where businesses tend to throw a lot of stuff, sort of puff pieces, uh, written or ghost or written by the brand, videos and adverts, and they're not very well curated. But I wanted to create a magazine that stood on its own two legs. So Secure Futures is about empowering business leaders who perhaps make decisions about technology, but maybe are not in technical roles and are not um, quite as clued up. And we help bring them on that journey explore ways they can make their customer data more private, explore some of the new technologies that are out there, but not in a a fearful or geeky way, but actually helping them to really make those decisions and feel inspired and empowered and, and, and cut past that buzzwords and the jargons. So I'm really proud of some of the pieces we've commissioned for that. So in the last few months, we've published pieces about how Ethiopia is going through its digital transformation Uh, We've commissioned top opinion formers like Corrie Doctorow has written a piece for us about how we should swap tech jobs for jobs that protect our environment due to climate change um, through to more practical pieces about how as business leaders we can focus on deep work and avoid digital distractions. The legalities nowadays of how we can agree contracts from working from anywhere, making blockchain safe. Um, We've got a piece I just read the other day about drone delivery using light aircraft So it's really inspirational and a big mix of different stories. It's won a lot of awards as well. So I'm really proud of that as a project because we've been able to bring it together on a small budget, but with a very nimble team, but with very bold ambitions. Yeah. And that sounds great, you know, like a magazine to to bring together that content. So it doesn't just sort of flow independently. It feels like you've really got something that that has a nice overview of, as you say, well-curated content there. Yeah, and within that, we can also position some of our own thought leaders, um, some of our own ideas about security. But actually, it's more important that there's credibility there that we help businesses with that idea about new technologies and security, rather than just trying to enforce our own products and our own viewpoint. As I say, I think you have to be even better if with, with editorial and um, creative content if you're coming from a brand. And and going back to the, the core of that content with cybersecurity, obviously a very serious topic, uh, but how do you make it fun and not just doom and gloom all the time? Well, actually, we never make it doom and gloom. Um, I think the cliche about cybersecurity is a hacker, he's wearing a hood, he's in a basement, there's green lines of code. That's the cliche. Um, in fact, there's a, a brilliant episode of one of the Alan Partridge series where they have an interview with a hacker and it's playing on all those cliches. And I think it's hysterical because actually that's not how cybercrime works. It's, it's more likely that hackers have probably got better offices than you and I have nowadays, particularly where we're all working from home. It's, it's a highly organized business. Um, so I, I think that kind of cliche of fear is something we're very, very clear that we want to avoid. Um, um, but I think one of the one of the ways that we do bring humour into it is, for example, um, we created a series of humorous videos about privacy. One of them was a couple set in a bar. Another was a printer in a park, which was trying to get the idea across that businesses might unwittingly expose their customer data. Um, And they were hugely successful little films because people found them very funny and relatable. So it's finding that moment of humour and connectivity 
Um, and, you know, and I'm a big believer in the fact that you do have to bring that emotion into to everything you do and bring that um, type two types of fast and slow thinking. Um, there's some research that was put out in 2019 by B2B International about emotion. It's a great piece of piece of research. Um, and it actually says that even super rational B2B buys like IT, for example, or business insurance, 56% of that decision comes down to the emotion of a group of people uh, making that decision. I found myself that quite stunning because there's so many different people involved. You'd think all the emotion would have been wheedled out through the procurement process, but still that human to human connection, do we believe in this product and do we believe in this organization plays a huge role. Um, and people nowadays, are, um, they expect brands to reflect them. They respect their advertising to show their diversity of people. They expect brands to help them solve those problems um, and not just talk about how great they are or just push adverts mm. direct, directed to them. So, so it's a hard balance to always make sure that you, you um, create that added value whilst also enabling people to actually understand what your brand stands for. Yeah, absolutely. And and sort of thinking beyond Kaspersky, injecting emotion into B2B, it's a fairly sort of new concept. Um, do, do you sort of see that becoming the dominant trend? Uh, I, I actually, from what I see, particularly in the IT world, there seems to be more of a drive towards being rational because we have so much data at our fingertips. But sometimes it takes people to be a bit brave and say that we do need to invest in that brand building. So, for example, in the magazine that we run, Secure Futures, um, we run native content advertising using different platforms, like, for example, Outbrain. And what we do find is that the things that get the best click through aren't necessarily the best content. So the rational brain would say, let's focus on all the stuff, our clickbait material, because that's where our money is better spent. But actually, as an editor, my view is to evenly balance it a little bit so you're pushing everything to people and then we might spend a little bit more money on the stuff that's driving better performance because it helps our budgets go further but we need to be brave and make sure you know that 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 deeper weightier topic is still going out to that audience um, if you're just driven by the numbers then you can sometimes be an own goal because you don't really focus on getting the messages that you might want to convey across or helping people in the way that all brands should be doing in the b2b space so is that sometimes then an uphill struggle to try and persuade uh, the, the team that you're working with leadership to invest and take the time to make that creative work as, as strong as it needs to be when they could just go for the shorter, easier option? Continually. Uh, I do see both with my experiences being agency side, consultancy side, client side, the continual challenge is getting the investment in media. So I think a lot of people understand the rationale about how you balance out your production, your activation budgets, but it's just, just an uphill journey, really. And in B2B, one of the... Um, I guess, archetypes that we face is that sales are all about face-to-face. -face. It's all about um, telephone, real-world sales. And even now, the, the thinking is it's all transitioning into webinars and um, online events. But we actually know it's got to be very, very blended. You've got to get that exposure through typical advertising. You've got to get people a bit deeper into the journey through that deeper um, thought leadership style content and then you've also got to do all the stuff you were doing with your sales calls but if you don't have that full rounded picture then you're going to you're going to miss out because your competitors will be investing a lot more in brand um, and it's a hard case to argue because i think people traditionally in sales roles over value the role of the human to human contact in the selling process versus the brand and marketing aspects of it so let's talk about effectiveness then. Uh, what exactly is the role of advertising in your mix, if you want to break it down? 
Well, I say that advertising, well, what is advertising to be more cerebral about it? Mm. I mean, all content is advertising now because you're putting yourself out there. Um, and in a sense, all advertising is probably failed because as soon as people recognize it as an advert, it doesn't become engaging or entertaining. Mm. So I think I, I think one of the roles is to make your adverts not feel like adverts, which is one of the reasons right. I was drawn uh, a midpoint in my career into content marketing, because I just saw how, how great it was really that for me, I'd been doing uh, branded content for, for 10 or so years before I got into content marketing. It just didn't have a name yet. It was just about creating valuable um, on content in the online or books or magazine space. But then when we came to content marketing as a more formal discipline, suddenly lots of lots of rules and methodology was applied to it, which in some senses has been good for, for getting the people to take content marketing seriously, but in other ways has perhaps killed some of the love and creativity which drew people to it in the first place, which is that it's all about stories. So if you have interesting people, interesting narratives, interesting opinions, um, then you can you can weave an interesting story that you might want to spend four minutes reading or a film you might want to spend seven, eight minutes watching. If you don't have that core interesting story that is believable, that is relatable to your audience at the heart of it, then whatever you create will fail. And then it sounds like that's self-justifying because it's a much more interesting, fun thing for you to, to work on and, and build rather than just the usual dry material that we've sort of become used to. Absolutely. But I actually found that I did quite a bit of A-B testing because my role is relatively new. Um, and last year, I split about half of my time and money towards more typical advertising and then about half of it towards richer narratives, documentary style content. And you probably won't be surprised to know from a marketing effectiveness point of view, which half was more successful. So mm. by spending a similar amount of money on the two activities, we got much better view through rates, click through rates for the deeper, longer, longer form thought leadership, and also for the more documentary style content. So that was an interesting exercise to do. It showed, I do still think that there's a role for both. You can't necessarily have one without the other, mm -hmm. but if you're really pushed, and you, you're a small startup, just think about what's the human content that you can create yourselves about you or about your customers. And it could be like this podcast we're creating and we're making now. It, it could be something that you could self-initiate um, and create and put out in the world that adds value and adds that credibility. Um, and it's a good talking point for your sales teams, for your executives to be really involved in that content creation process yourselves, be very hands-on, which is probably what, not what agencies want to hear because they want to take that work away um, for themselves. But if you can be quite involved at the brand level in creating that content in-house, as my two seniors in part, um, that also brings brings um, a richness and deepness to the experience of yourself doing it, but also brings um, skills and value back to the organisation. And what about the role of fame in B2B? How important is that? Fame. Um, I'm just I'm thinking about David Bowie, I'm sure he has an analogy of it. But but David <laughs> Bowie, he was he was a, a multifarious man. He he went through many different faces, um, many different moods, and very very many different styles. And in a sense, fame isn't always about doing the same thing. If we look at lessons that Bowie's taught us, so it's about reinventing yourself and being relevant to what's happening now. But then there's also something about being 
stable as a brand and standing for something consistently. So if you look at the really successful brands, like, for example, Coke, um, can't stand the drink, but the branding is very effective. They've evolved and made themselves relevant and made that product relevant over time. So I'd say being relevant to the here and now is very important. And that's how, how you can build fame. And that can be about what your customers care about now. It can be tapping into the latest technologies that you could use for marketing. In our case, uh, uh, especially it's about talking about those technologies and, and how they can be useful to the business, but finding a relevancy to what's happening now, not staying still for too long. And, and going back to Kaspersky then, it's an international brand with Russian heritage. So how do you balance the need to stay true to the, to the local with this more international appeal? So uh, I think part of the work that my team does is exploring international audiences and bases. We, we are an international company. We have bases in 46 countries. And although we're um, born and bred in Russia, uh, we serve customers all over the world. We have customers in every single possible company uh, and industry you can think of, except for perhaps the Antarctica. So for us, um, we have to be quite proactive about that. Um, find experts in our different regions who, put, who want to be put forward for thought leadership and think quite internationally. I think it's hard for everyone to do that because we all see the world from our own worldview and our own cultural heritage. But one of the recent ways that I do that um, in our magazine, Secure Futures, for example, is by commissioning a lot of talent from around the world. We've got writers from Ethiopia, Tunisia. We have illustrators in Poland, Venezuela, uh, New Zealand. So we're really starting to tap into the international perspectives um, and also trying to build in quotes from our inter international colleagues, some of our partners and customers as well. So you have to work hard to not become too monocultural. Um, as a global organization. Absolutely. Um, and then going back to your career, um, you mentioned that some of the highlights were uh, making fabric conditioner interesting for Unilever <laughs> and making auditing exciting for EY. Do you want to just talk us through how on earth you make auditing exciting? That sounds like an impossible task. Yeah. I don't know if I've done it, but I seem to have worked. So I actually worked for several agencies um, who have EY as a client because they're a big international um, financial firm. And one of the projects I worked on was the art of auditing. So we were looking at the relationship that EY had with art archives and how we could bring some of that into a very kind of rich rich immersive um, campaign but later on I actually worked on their careers side for a while um, and again we were trying to bring to life the stories of the employees and employee marketing is not the most exciting type of marketing but it teaches you a lot of discipline because you have to engage in the end customer through the business's values and then explain to people why the hell would you want to work for this company particularly one that may not pays as well as their competitors against another one. So, um, you know, and those kind of projects are really done on a shoestring budget compared to bigger ad campaigns. So again, it's you have to be very, very resourceful. It's thinking about how you can get people to self-film, create wrappers or formats that are easily repeatable. Um, and that's the sort of discipline that a small business or a startup needs as well. It's not necessarily about saying we won't do any marketing or social media advertising because we don't have the person or we don't have the budget. You could potentially, with a smartphone, you can you can start to 
produce audio content, stop producing video content um, and just experimenting with it. I think that that authenticity is becoming more and more valid because even big budget adverts now still are relying on people being at home. Mm. <laughs> so I think now is a, a really perfect storm. It's, a, it's an excellent time for emerging brands, particularly to start dipping their toe into creating richer richer storytelling content and people are more forgiving right now about the quality of that content absolutely and and looking back at your work earlier on uh, in your career um with the agencies what what would you say makes a successful agency and a successful campaign one of the agencies i worked with for that i really enjoyed was ogilvy and i reason i really enjoyed it was it really encouraged that cerebral thinking and that thinking fast and slow um, way so we were never too pressurized into coming up with all the ideas straight away in fact it was frowned upon if you delivered a deck that didn't look good and wasn't well constructed and you you couldn't really discuss that in detail with a client you would have failed in your job as a strategist. Um, but quite often, that's just a luxury that um, most most businesses and agencies don't have because they don't they don't have the, the necessary money to do that. But if you can, for the projects that really count, afford to give people a bit more time, <laughs> that makes such a difference to the end quality and the output. And, and that feeling of being collegiate, where everybody's brought in as a specialist, whatever level they are, and they're treated with respect for the specialist skills that they bring in the mix. Mm. Um, I think more agencies could could cultivate that, uh, that type of culture. It's not easy. I, I can't say that any agency I've been with has really really nailed it but it's 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 work that you have to put in place to make that culture as inclusive as possible well we just have to look back at Don Draper and Mad Men to see how difficult you know that that culture became set in the set in stone uh, way back when and uh, it's hard to extract it isn't it yeah but I was thinking about that as I was looking back at some of the Mad Men episodes and and the episode that I would want to highlight I found was interesting um it's an episode called Babylon in the first series and what they're doing there is they're testing out the latest lipstick brands by getting the girls in the office round um and there's a there's a scene where they're ogling them through the one-way mirror um uh, what they're wearing and how they're behaving and criticizing them but there's actually a moment of insight there where peggy steps forward for the first time and she describes the experience as saying a basket of discarded kisses and at that moment um one of her colleagues says oh you know, you've got a creative brain. Maybe I'll put you on a bit of creative work. So that's actually the moment where she comes out of the shadows and stops being a secretary and starts being a creative. So for me, that's a, an interesting moment, despite the fact it's it's a horrible scene <laughs> in terms of the way that the women are treated. It's actually about recognising that in order to create marketing for your customer, you have to be more relatable. And that includes whether you're creating, I've been in, in situations um, in, in agencies where there've been very few uh, women in the room making decisions um, and, and also pitches that have failed where they've got a team of people who can't relate to the topic matter, whether it's gender-based or age-based, and they just can't relate to that subject. And therefore they haven't got the creative solution that's right for the audience. And that's a really big challenge for creative teams. We're um, ostensibly at a senior level, slightly more um, male bias in the UK. Uh, there are less people of colour coming into the industry and making progress. So it's getting harder and harder for us to be representative of the people that are out there in the world. Um, and that it seems to also be a pattern in the UK that's moving backwards. So diversity is uh, becoming, becoming a less diverse advertising industry um, this year than we were two years ago. Um, 
I don't know what the answers are for the industry, but there's definitely a role uh, to play in, in resourcing and people management to make sure that people do have um, that step up. And the Me Too movement, I believe, has actually been really, really good for, for advertising. It's, it's, I think even a show like Mad Men wouldn't be made now because of the depiction would cause such outrage that 10 years ago when it was on air, people maybe saw it as a historical whimsy. Now I think people would probably not receive it quite so favourably. So I think all these things have had a positive impact on making um, the marketing industry more inclusive. And down the line, hopefully that will play out in making sure that our marketing is more inclusive to our customers. Absolutely. Uh, They've made a good start, but there's clearly still a long way to go there. So let's uh, move on finally to our rapid fire round. I'm just going to throw some questions at you and I don't want you to think too much. Just uh, respond with your gut and and tell us uh, a quick, sharp answer if you can. So number one, advertising or ABM? Advertising. I don't know what ABM means. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then it has to be advertising. Number two, logic or magic? I've answered that one before. It's both. You You can't have one without the other. Good answer. Brand building or lead generation? Definitely brand building. What's the problem with B2B right now? It needs to have its own PR and get better people in because, yeah, it's it's not seen as an attractive career path when it should be a great one. Okay. Don Draper would fix the problem by? A nice cigarette and a smooth martini. (laughs) Sounds great. Uh, And if you could tell all the CEOs to read one book, what do you think it would be? I I don't read books. (laughs) I would tell them to get a Blinkist subscription. (laughs) You can listen to books as audio format for 15 minutes and you can absorb every possible book in the universe in in one year. Fake it till you make it. I love it. Uh, Well, all it leaves me to do is say thank you for such an insightful chat. Really enjoyed spending time listening to your philosophy. Thanks very much, Susie O'Neill. Thank you. I'm Stuart Black. See you next time on B2B Needs Don Draper.